Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, at this point we release three different types of podcasts. There's our seminar series, which provides opportunities to listen back at some of the most important presentations at past events we've held. There's our 10-minute lesson series, in which the hope is to educate and inform listeners on particular areas of policy, giving a brief overview somewhere in between eight to 15 minutes and really just hitting on the key points that people really need to know. Then there's our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. Seamus Boland is the CEO of Irish Rural Link and an expert in rural and agricultural affairs with over 30 years of experience in dealing with communities and policymakers. Seamus has also been the chair and facilitator of Irish Peatlands Council since 2011, and he chairs the government interdepartmental committee responsible for the implementation of the Peatlands strategy. Seamus is the current president of the European Economic Social Council Diversity Group 3. The diversity group is made up of delegates drawn from each member state, representing sectors which include community, agriculture, environment, consumer, social economy, and various professions. It's in this capacity that he talks to me about the Conference on the Future of Europe. Europe shapes more and more aspects of Irish life, so this is really an important topic. Seamus is also a man on the move, so there is some unavoidable background noise, so apologies in advance. We hope you enjoy it. Firstly, Seamus, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that you're a, a very busy man. Europe is probably more on people's minds now at the moment, what with the situation in Ukraine. I think depending on your age, we take the European project for granted, don't we? We yeah. think that it's, it is a successful project. Suzanne, the, like the, people forget the EU won the Nobel Prize for Peace mm. in 2012, and it wasn't an empty gesture. It was an actual uh, recognition of what the EU is. It's the biggest peace project in the world, following two incredibly disastrous world wars in human history, probably contributed to the worst loss of life ever in wars. So that's Europe. I mean, people talk about because some of us have not seen war in this level before, we think, oh, Europe is a very peaceful place. But, I mean, it contributed to the worst possible loss of life. This is why this is serious, because Europe is always more fragile than people give it credit. The conference then on the future of Europe is much more important than yeah. just a bunch of people meeting saying, what are we going to do next? The future of Europe is vital. The future of Europe is incredibly vital because, of course, the future of Europe trying to not just preserve a democratic ideal, which we all ascribe to, but it's trying to preserve a sense and a set of values that, you know, are not just about democracy. They're about equality, social justice, equal treatment in so many areas of life, people who are minorities, people with various disabilities. In fact, if you look at the nine Irish grounds that governs the Equality Act in Ireland, they in many other ways sum up the values of Europe. And that's why preserving Europe is so absolutely essential. You really hit on a key point there that it's not just economic union, it's not just free trade, it's that solidarity, that community aspect, it's the social and cultural yeah. aspect of it that's really vital to yeah. it. This is the point. You can look at 
the WTOs and you can look at even OECDs and you look at a whole range of other groupings in, in the world in terms of how they manage trade, etc. But the EU, as you rightly said, is yes, about trade, but it's a lot more about values, about freedoms, about equality and all of that. And honestly, it, it really is. And, and that's what makes it, you know, something to fight for. And that's why the Conference of the Future of Europe is not just something to imagine. It's actually something to deliver and to ensure that those values aren't lost. Because in this world, <laughs> those values are seriously under threat. So the way the conference is working is groups of people are coming together all across Europe and discussing what they want to see out of a future of Europe. And then that's fed back through to the conference. Am I correct in thinking that? Yeah. What, well, it's based on the Irish Citizens Assembly uh, role, which is really citizens panels are, are formed over a wide range of subject areas. And I, I can go through them in a moment. But And basically, the deliberations of those citizens panels are what we're talking about. And they then feed those deliberations to the various parliamentarians. And we are there effectively representing organized civil society. Some tensions there because organized civil society, you know, is there a long time and uh, delivering recommendations will largely depend on, on civil society. Nonetheless, it, that's how it's managed. We're just to give you the situation right now. There's a final conference in, on the 9th of May, which should approve the recommendations made by the citizens' panels, but there will be a lot of discussion with parliamentarians and civil society organisations before that. I might go back then to the use of the wide variety of subject areas. Yeah. Yes, I mean, you have, and I'm trying to remember them all now because I haven't got the page in front of me, but I think I know a lot of them. The one I'm involved in myself is Europe and the World, and that's quite quite um, <laughs> prescient at the moment. Yeah. Um, it wasn't seen that way at the beginning, but it is now. We have economic and social. We have climate change, as you would expect. We have, uh, which is, includes environment, of course. We have education and and then we have a very big one on values, which really incorporates what we've just discussed. And, and, and in that values, there's a whole range of equality, whether it be gender, whether it be migrant, whether it be racial, whatever. That's quite a, a, quite a big one. I, I think I mentioned the economic and social, which obviously is about jobs and trade and all of that. So that's the kind of areas that has been covered by the conference. The huge scope. There's a difficulty there, I suppose, because Europe isn't a homogenous group. You've got this really diverse yeah. value set, I suppose, as you move across Europe. Yeah. I, I, in many ways, um, even though I'm in Brussels quite a bit with the European Economic Social Committee, and I see members from all 27, used to be 28 countries, so you get a good idea of the divergence. But in this uh, conference, I did expect a lot more. And fine, funny enough, when it comes to rights and equality, the divisions I expected, especially with Poland and Hungary, have not emerged as sharp as I thought they would. Okay, there is some problems with Hungary and Poland um, in terms of some of the more, you know, gender, especially homosexual and, and matters of that sort. 
but it is not as sharp as I thought it would be or I expected. In fact, if I look across all of Europe and certainly the citizens' panels and their recommendations, even from countries I would have expected some more right-wing views, they're surprisingly strengthening the, the whole issue of values in the way Ireland would, in the way, let's say, the Scandinavian countries would, and the, the likes of France and Germany, you know, so the, you know who would be seen in the vanguard of, of these kind of rights. So it's not as, uh, that was the good, nice surprise. It's not as, as divergent as I thought <clears throat> it might be. Uh, and I thought, in fact, it would be. So in, in, in that sense, I'm, so it's a nice surprise, Suzanne. When it comes to, I suppose, basic or fundamental rights, you would hope that we would be in agreement and then things we take for granted, like a welfare state, we take for granted that this yeah. our government has a duty of care. If you read about poverty, anything before 1900, it's just before sort of beverage and bevan in the UK, and you read how poverty was dealt with and the fact that there's no onus whatsoever on a government to provide yeah. anything for its citizens, yeah. then we would take that as absolutely for granted. So yeah. even the fact that my welfare is my government's yeah. There is a, a workshop on welfare as well. And again, I know from some of the preliminary findings, they're quite pleasing as well. I mean, I think the concept of, as you rightly point out, you know, managing welfare in a way that uh, gives floors to people who can drop very severely to the bottom for various reasons. Equally, but equally what I found, because I was watching this as well, mainly because it was my own organization has a big Meals and Wheels care group was in our organization. There is now an emerging um, strong beliefs that there are certain rights, for example, not everybody can work. You know, even people with qualifications, etc., because of their responsibilities for caring. And there's emerging in the discussions the idea that certainly leaving aside universal wage, which is in the discussion as well, that for people in caring, we have to look at a lot more because there isn't in economic terms, there is some savings for the state, but really that's not the reason either. It's about individual and human rights. It's about the rights of those who need to be cared for. And it is about the rights of those who have no option but to provide care. And I think, you know, when we talk about welfare, there was a big, I was part of a discussion where there was a comparison on welfare equals charity, which, as you would, I think, Suzanne, you would be pretty horrified, as many of us were. I, I, I could feel my hackles come up even as you said it. It's like, what? And, uh, and it, it, well, economists seem to think it's, it's kind of their charitable donation, the entrepreneur, let's call it the enterprise or entrepreneurs tend to see you know well if we make enough profit we can give you some money so that you can manage yourself a little bit of that still there Suzanne but I mean there was a strong view across the, the countries that no that there is an issue here how do we manage our older people how do we manage people who who can't work, who um, never will work because of disability, etc. Even those who do work with disability, how do we manage those? And ironically, there's a lady from Hungary who was um, really strong that it's not that we owe, it's not that they're somehow to be 
owed some kind of favor, they should have, as of right, be cared for in the proper dignified way and that people who care for them should be treated in the same way. So I was really, I, I hope to see that strengthening in, as one of the findings in the, in the, in the uh, conference of the future Europe. I mean, that's really heartening. As somebody who has had over my working life, have dipped in and out of the social welfare system. And yes. whatever barriers there were to employment at the time, an, an overly generous social welfare system wasn't one of them. Well, listen, as somebody who grew up, I'm afraid, back in the 70s, 80s, uh, living as well on the social welfare system, yeah. it's, it's disheartening sometimes to hear in many cases when I come across young people, it's still not massively changed. You know, I'd like to think when I was in, my, in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was really struggling but there you are Sinead as they say that but I suppose look the conference of the future of Europe is about preserving all of those rights and and as I said I did expect some kickback from Hungary especially uh, even Poland but that was not there. There was one note that you had made that I have here which is about making sure that those on the edges are heard in these citizens panels and maybe how how difficult i think suzanne there's another thesis to be written on the concept of citizens panels and being irish in one sense you're kind of pleased to hear by the way this is an irish model we're copying we think it works really well you must be so pleased being irish that we have chosen your model now suzanne at the risk of getting myself into all sorts of trouble, as I normally do, um, even among Irish diplomats and that. I, I wouldn't, I, I, I mind myself, I suppose, in Europe, but I have said here in public that I am not massively uh, sure that the citizens panel model is to be lauded with complete welcome. And looking at the citizens panels in Europe, I did make the point uh, only last um, Friday at the at the meeting that what I saw of the citizens' panels, I tried to be very diplomatic, Suzanne, about this, but because they were there in the room, but they did come from a certain, what would you call it, economic strata in society, which in my opinion did not uh, represent certainly the very poor, didn't, less so maybe, but not fully either, other stratas of society, which I thought, was a, was a fault. And I think we were, I, this came to really sharp contrast in the discussion of Europe and the world when I wanted to put in amendments, making sure that, you know, things like equality, proper living conditions would be part of it. Because where in the world could turn out to be a trade workshop? And I, I, I'm okay, I can live with that, but not totally. So some people were coming in with objections to my amendments because they said, no, they belong in the welfare workshop. Now, Suzanne, in my opinion, I've always had this, and I know Sean Healy will, will tell you this in no uncertain terms. <laughs> I have always believed that um, if we in what's called the social uh, a, a sector are not in the middle of economics, as Sean himself has been, we're nowhere. Yes. So I wanted it, and I, I, I made a quite a bit of a song and dance about it. Um, <laughs> not very merry, I might as well tell you, <laughs> insisting that 
We cannot ignore the in, in economic fields the the social benefits, and because they are in, they are economic. So that's still there, Suzanne, and that worries me. That the economics of these things are regarded as an elite sport, you know, and shouldn't be, <laughs> shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't mix it with the real social categories. I'm sure you've come across that before. They're intrinsically linked because. Obviously, economics and policy impacts every other aspect of your life and often to the detriment of the social aspect of it. So I often think you you could look at, say, cigarettes and cigarettes as a model economically is a a win-win. So you've got the farmers, you have the growers, you have the distributors, you have the the bodegos, you have the corner shops, you have the hospitals, you have the self-help books. That was a win-win for yeah. for the economic model, but for the social model, maybe not so. So there is an argument. Oh no, there's, there's Suzanne. The there's much more than an argument, in my opinion, is intrinsic. Mm. And and this is why I admire Sean Healy so much. Is that he brings the economic whether it's tax reform, whether it's a reform of the various economic systems, right in up front because. You know, society, the economic is should be the servant of society, not society, the servant of economics. Uh, and whether we like it or not, there is a reason we talk about proper trade and proper economics and proper industry and proper commerce. There is a reason. And that reason is to improve the lives of people, not the other way around. And I think that's what's really striking in terms of the discussion I had last Friday. And economics, again, I'll probably get into trouble with the economists with this, but it's not a science. It's sold, <laughs> it's sold as a science, but it's not a science. It's not. You know? yeah, it's the most, uh, as somebody said once upon a time, it's the most um, unquantifiable science that ever existed. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, like science will prove whether water and has oxygen and hydrogen Def, definitively, but science, uh, that's what science does, but uh, economics never does that. You, know? you said it's a shame then that that influences so many aspects of our lives. But to go back maybe again to the, the marginalised voices that aren't heard, what fascinates me at the moment is is that whole concept of who gets to be heard. Is it the same voices over and over again? Yeah. Do you have to be part of a particular organisation? Do you need to learn to speak in a particular way? to be heard. Yeah, I think that's, uh, there's two ways of looking at this particular conference. You'd have to say the citizens that have been randomly picked, in fairness, don't know the language and there's a certain strength in that Mm -hmm. and do don't always get it and they are being treated as the main as it were uh, contributors to the whole conference so that's a change there is a but and it really is it's almost that the exclusion of organized civil society like you can't like if you look at organized civil society across the pandemic and across europe at the moment or ukraine none a lot of the help and assistance and even the advocacy would never happen if if organized civil society didn't exist so there is a tension which i spoke about about almost the exclusion of civil society because they want to promote citizens panels the the issue here is when this is over, the citizens' panels are, that's it, they go home. And if they're, if they're organized again, it'll be a completely different set. Now, that's fine. But the recommendations have to be and will be dependent on how civil society can manage them. And if you look at civil society, if you look at even the 
Community and Voluntary Pillar in Ireland and all the other organisations out there. There is, a, there is a very strong bank of experience needed uh, to advise governments as well. So on the one hand, yes, the language is required, as it were, to manage every government, Brussels included. But on the other hand, those in civil society, especially organised, are well practised at it and they need to be because otherwise the bureaucracy fights back all the time. Like bureaucracy always fights back. Do you want to finish up then with your biggest hope or your biggest fear or a bit of both? Yeah, the biggest fear, Suzanne, is of course that the recommendations will come forward. They will exclude civil society from it and then they will let the parliamentarians or the commission effectively re-doctor and that's kind of we saw evidence of that happening even at the, the last uh, last weekend to me when the panel recommendations come forward they need to be taken seriously i think despite my misgivings about the way the panels are picked i think they will broadly reflect i think progressive ideas on the other hand uh, how safe will they be because look the, to me, the disappointing thing has been almost the exclusion of civil society. We're, we're almost on the outside shouting in, and I'm talking about a range of civil society organisations who turn up, including ourselves. So that's my fear. Um, and of course, with the Ukraine situation and the war um, and the economics that will emerge out of that, there is a strong fear that once again, the uh, um, exclusion, the erosion of poverty, all of those things will go down the priority list. And um, some of that was emerging as well in the debate. So I would be very worried about that. Austerity is not a word any of us want to hear coming out of this show, it's not? No, no. that's the problem. And already the, the strong economists are beginning to emerge as to, you know, we can't afford and all of that. I know the language, so do you. It's another use of language to ensure that they won't even try. And we both know that we can't afford not to. That's the whole argument. And that's why I keep arguing that civil society needs to continually strengthen its own economic arguments because uh, and insist that we are allowed into the discussion <laughs> on these economic arguments, not like what was happening last Friday, where they wanted to exclude amendments I was making because they were regarded as economic, they were regarded as social interfering in the economics. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you can imagine, you can imagine. Seamus, okay. thank you so much for your time and best of luck as we forward with this. It's an interesting time. Yeah. It's an important time. So as yeah. thank, thank you for taking the fight with you. Thanks, Seamus. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.